but I don't immediately and I don't want to immediately make connections to Palestine citizenship, Palestinian citizenship when I'm speaking, uh, in the first part at least, so that we can just work through some methodological and conceptual issues of why acts of citizenship, why such a phrase, uh, what does that phrase accomplish, and um, what um, um, uh, what it wants to accomplish, and once you know one makes an investment in working with that concept, what kind of what kinds of obligations it imposes on a researcher to think through. So those are the questions that I want to address, uh, methodological and and conceptual, and then maybe in the second part we can bring examples that in other seminars that you have perhaps discussed or you want to discuss today uh, from specifically Palestinian questions and uh, Palestinian uh, citizenship and discuss in what ways actually this concept can perform uh, something original, something useful in thinking through Palestinian citizenship. Obviously, I am convinced, and some of you are, that it can. So let's explore uh, what those would be. Um, now, when uh, we began studying various aspects of citizenship, now, from hindsight, I say that there are three ways of approaching citizenship, but it wasn't always that clear. Uh, those three ways, as uh, approaching citizenship as status, approaching citizenship as habitus, and approaching citizenship as acts. Um, this wasn't always clear. Uh, through time, it became clear that this is what we're doing. But why actually be uh, dissatisfied with approaching citizenship as status? What is uh, particularly um, lacking in that way of thinking about citizenship. Now, in the 1990s and early 2000s when we were doing research on citizenship, um, the field was really dominated by people who are specialized in the technical details of what each country uh, does in terms of defining citizenship rights. Sometimes comparing them but not even that, comparative work on re, uh, citizenship was even scant. Most of it was really the dominant uh, approach was in Britain, uh, the right to privacy emerged in 1689, it has changed in 1736, it became informal, uh, informally recognized in law such and such period. So then you would know about you know, the, the, the uh, history of that particular civil liberty or civil right called privacy in Britain. Or entry-exit requirements, immigration regulations. Um, all these issues that have to do with legal status of citizens, really the dominant aspect of understanding citizenship. Which, of course, understandable, this is one of the most significant ideas with aspects of citizenship which regulates for example residency regulates entry exit and along with residency and entry exit it also regulates what then additional rights one can claim on the basis of entry exit and residency um, today for example in Europe if you are a 
a citizen of, let's say, um, uh, Ukraine and arrive in a member state, let's say France, upon entry, you have certain rights. But these rights are not equivalent to another person who enters into uh, France, let's say, from Belgium, because Belgium is part of the European Union. So for a Belgian citizen then is entitled to European Union uh, rights. So entry, exit, residency movement are interlocking complex of legal aspect of what constitutes citizenship. And clearly, it's a really significant aspect of it. But in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, particularly sociologists, but also anthropologists, began questioning, thinking about citizenship only in these terms. Because it becomes very technical. Any moment that you use the term citizenship, oh, citizenship rights, passport holding, entry, exit, that interlocking complex that I mentioned, it's, it gets focused on that. Um, anthropologists and sociologists, but some political scientists have said, but citizenship is also practice. Through various ways of doing things, by practicing citizenship, people come to inhabit citizenship. They inhabit a particular subject position that uh, invites people to think like and live like citizens. There are such things, for example, in our cultures as a concept of good citizenship. What does it mean? So, you know, a young man who gives, for example, his seat without any regulations on, on streetcar, in uh, metro, to an elderly person has already inhabited a citizenship um, way of living that you respect elders, you transfer your rights to others uh, in respect of them, uh, and by showing this respect, you inhabit a particular citizenship subjectivity. And there are many other examples. We can also push it to political realm. In political realm, for example, beyond voting, yes, voting is a legal right, but beyond voting, what it means to inhabit um, a subject position who has the right to vote is about being aware of political situation, making oneself knowledgeable about politics of uh, the events and issues that surrounds one, and properly making judgment about what is right, what is wrong to do politically, and when called upon to render a judgment about a party, about a leader, and so on, that one is informed. So the anthropologists and sociologists have argued that all of this cannot be captured by this interlocking mechanisms of legal requirements of what citizenship means. Citizenship also means inhabiting this particular subject position. And we have to look at comparatively how each culture uh, inflects this. It's different in the UK, for example, what it means to be a British citizen. Um, perhaps being detached from the political process is a definition of being a citizen. Whereas in France, it's the opposite, being attached and engaged with the political process until maybe very recently um, is the very significant part of 
occupying that French conception of political subjectivity. So then, uh, and then you can just, you know, add various other comparative issues to this. So there have been studies um, about uh, these comparative aspects of inhabiting a particular political subjectivity called citizenship. Now, before I enter the third one, what maybe is lacking in here, what doesn't give us um, sort of a, um, um, a perspective that we could even deepen this, is that there is also an unresolved issue here. In either looking at citizenship as status or as subjectivity or habitus, in Western social science, the predominant assumption has been that as status and habitus, citizenship is uniquely Western phenomenon. It was in the West, it was invented, if you like, specifically during the Enlightenment, but even more broadly, sociologists such as Max Weber arguing that you know, medieval cities were the hot uh, bed of uh, the particular idea of membership, loyalty, belonging, and also autonomy and rights, that citizenship really is a Western Christian phenomenon. I slipped in the Christian, particularly although it's not explicitly said, it is implicitly assumed that Christian Western societies have invented um, uh, citizenship. Now, when sociologists and anthropologists who began thinking about citizenship as habitus, when they are confronted with this question, yes, but you know, there is citizenship in China, there is citizenship in um, Tunisia, there is citizenship in uh, Turkey. These are not like hotbed of um, Western places. Ah, the response is, but of course they have become westernized. In other words, they have imported the idea of citizenship, both as status and habitus, and then they incorporated it into their uh, constitutional regimes. So if we see citizenship elsewhere today, it is only because it was at one point imported if, of course, the word is never imposed. So there's like a discrepancy. Now, on this question, I had with group of uh, researchers first assembled in in Canada. I assembled two series of researchers in two big projects in Canada. Uh, one was about acts of citizenship. The other one is about citizenship and Orientalism. We began asking questions about both these assumptions uh, that citizenship is uniquely Western. And, and perhaps even Christian in its origins, and that it can be found in other places only when it is imported to other places. But there isn't any indigenous, if you like. There isn't any autonomous development of political subjectivity that might approximate something that we might call citizenship, especially in terms of habitus. That there is no such thing. Now, the the story gets even more complicated than this, but this is where also Edward Said becomes crucial in understanding the linkage between Orientalism and citizenship, because the, the linkage that he allows us to do is that it's not only this, there's this assumption, 
But um, imposing citizenship understood in particular ways also has been an imperial domination technology. So we could find these examples in, in India and in China and, and other places. This is the connection that, that one makes. So then with these two projects in the early 2000s, I began asking questions about both the Orientalism aspect, but also beginning to looking uh, at citizenship, perhaps in different ways, beyond status and habitus. And I'm giving you an account of this in a way that I've never given elsewhere, precisely because I want to stage the development simultaneously. On the one hand, thinking about this East-West conflict in terms of thinking about um, political subjectivity, but also at the same time thinking about citizenship in status and habitus as being inadequate to understand. Now, why is it inadequate? So let's leave the Orientalist part aside. Now, why are we have begun thinking about habitus or status as inadequate is that in both status and habitus forms, the focus is on citizens. Meaning, those who have already occupied legally the status of citizen, they have a right to be legal citizens. But in Europe and America, there are many political struggles that cannot be captured by the term citizen. A lot of them involve non-citizens. Non-citizen politics is really a significant aspect of political constellation in Europe and America today and, and 10 years ago. But at the same time, non-citizens often act like citizens, meaning occupy as habitus uh, citizenship subject positions, taking to streets demonstrations, filing petitions, um, doing reports to the parliament, sending petitions, organizing, taking cases to courts, uh, mobilizing, establishing civil society organizations, mobilizing for civil society organizations. The whole gambit, the whole repertoire, if you like, that goes for citizenship habitus is actually practiced by non-citizens. The problem is that when non-citizens practice such citizenship, they get into deep trouble. They face deportation. If you're a refugee, if you're an immigrant, if you're an illegal immigrant, um, you face imprisonment, you face curtailment of your rights, certain social rights, certain legal rights. You already lack political rights, you cannot vote, and so on. So it is the, the place of those who practice citizenship as non-citizens is, in one word, precarious. The precarity, vulnerability of people who engage in politics is significant, much more so than who have the legal status of citizens. So we said, you know, this has to be addressed within citizenship theory. You cannot just simply understand citizenship on already those who have the right to. But what about those who don't have a right to and yet still do practice citizenship? And interesting confluence, there's also activism in Europe and America of those people 
who hold status of citizen, but they mobilize for non-citizens. So this is an interesting sort of crisscrossing. So these people are not just simply doing politics for their own interest, which is a significant aspect of citizenship, right? It's a significant aspect of citizenship not understood in liberal individualist way. That is, citizenship is as much as about the rights of yourself, the ones that you're entitled, the ones that you want to be entitled to, but also rights of others that you fight for, you struggle for. So in Europe and America, number of organizations, for example, no one is illegal, um, politics of um, citizenship without borders, um, those who also um, um, engage in uh, uh, politics of um, illegal aliens and their rights and so on. Now, these people don't get into trouble for engaging in that politics in the same way those who don't have the right to citizenship do. But their position also became precarious in some ways. They also face considerable punishment and, and so on. So then there's a complex in here that needs to be theorized, politically understood, and practically studied was the question. It is at that time we began thinking about, you know, uh, with the um, influence of Judith Butler, the concept of performativity, the concept of, um, of um, uh, performance, also in theater studies and so on, we began to say, well, what, do ha what happens when citizens stage citizenship? They've performed citizenship. They occupy these positions, occupy legally or illegally. What happens? Don't people have right to occupy these positions when they perform them? Um, legal authorities increasingly felt um, nervous about this development in Europe and America. Uh, because you're beginning to think about the rights of those, for example, uh, illegal aliens, uh, whether they have a right to vote, whether they have a right to do street protest, do they have a right to do petition, let alone do they have a right to now residency, because they perform themselves as uh, citizens. So it became a very um, 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 contentious issue. As we moved along, this performativity aspect uh, developed to a point where we began um, developed uh, this idea that in fact there is something that all these share is disobedience. We often think about status and habitus of citizenship as obedience, like within the law. How are we going to theorize disobedience as a condition of citizenship? It is an aspect of citizenship. Can we incorporate disobedience as part of citizenship? That subjects who are disobedient are also citizens and that has to be respected. Can we develop a constitutional law that can recognize this? There is, of course, in particularly in American law, uh, there is the First Amendment and it's also protection the Fourth Amendment, um, disobedience, civil disobedience as a right uh, as, as a constitutional right. Can we draw on this but also don't understand it as individualistic terms but collective terms articulate that disobedience. So this interest in disobedience led to a particular um, understanding of 
Perhaps citizenship also involves disruption. Now, violence and non-violence of disruption is negotiable. Um, we don't necessarily have to describe at the outset, saying that, for example, violent disruption can never be considered as citizenship. Um, but that does not mean that every form of disruption would have to involve violence. But it can be maintained as a principle that can be invoked, but it, it does not have to be um, prescribed in advance. It becomes very tricky to, to define that distinction. But nonetheless, you know, there was a determinants to keep that um, um, open. As a result then, we have developed this conception of enactment, which plays on two concepts of uh, enactment, or two meanings of uh, enactment. On the one hand, as you all know, enactment is a legal act. It clearly, in law, has a meaning that a law is enacted. It's a legal concept. But bringing in performativity and performance, we also inflected it on what enactment is also what happens when a particular group, particular group of individuals enact a, a right that they don't have, mobilize in it, in it uh, for example, occupying as illegal aliens to a particular place and seek the right to residency on the basis of human rights or whatever this, whatever repertoire that one draws from, but itself it's an illegal act in that particular. So what happens with this? So then we develop, you know, the three cardinal concepts to think with citizenship. Subjectivity, in the sense in which I articulate political subjectivity, how does one occupy a political uh, subject position of a citizen? Secondly, performativity, how does one perform citizenship? And enactment, how does one enact citizenship when it disrupts the given order, given legal um, status? And then we theorize this with a little bit um, drawing on Hannah Arendt, beginning something new, and so on, which I'm not going to go into, but if you ask me questions, it's, it's in, uh, in the chapter. Just a small question. The first point is, the second is performativity, the third one is... Enactment, enactment. And yeah. the first one? Subjectivity. Okay. Um, I apologize, there are a number of trinities. When I reread re the um, uh, <laughs> chapter, uh, it's not necessarily by design, but you know the, the first trinity is the um, status, habitus, acts, and then the second trinity, a broader level of uh, subjectivity, performativity, and enactment. And I hope that there isn't any more uh, of that. It it gets a bit confusing, but. So the idea is then, how are we going to theorize within the given tradition of political theory, whether we draw on our end or any other source, um, acts that disrupt the current legal order? And when that disruption occurs, what, how do we understand the precarity, precariousness of subjects who are caught in those um, questions? So then, the question of how we articulated that beginning something new as a rupture. I give some examples in the chapter, but also at the end, number of acts we look 
Um, I look at, you know, what, what does it mean to study and act? So I look at, for example, that man who is a uh, environmental citizen, environmental activist, uh, he's himself not an illegal alien, so he's duly constituted citizen, but he goes into a bidding uh, and gets into uh, accidentally into the uh, bidding for public lands and he buys millions of dollars or worth of public lands to which he's not entitled to nor can he pay for in the bidding process. Then he gets two years prison for that. And in his court case, he argues that he was merely uh, practicing his amendment rights and that he should not be imprisoned and he was just enacting civil disobedience. So I take that one example, but there are so many other examples of how does a subject, you know, get caught in an illegal situation and yet could be still practicing citizenship. How do we um, conceptualize that? Now there in the question of illegal aliens, it's, it's very difficult to, to make this because illegal aliens don't necessarily have human rights because legality, illegality is determined by nationality laws and citizenship laws. But uh, there are also interesting cases that enabled us to make arguments. Um, I don't want to really go into this notion of ruptures, citations, iterations, the uh, engaging with the Judith Butler and speech acts theory machinations, but it is important to go through that. Um, the theoretical arguments are really important to go through that because also it is not done in citizenship. In theorizing citizenship, this is not done. Um, mainstream theorizing of citizenship is not going to think about most of the time performativity and enactment aspect of it, let alone subjectivity. Nor will they be interested in looking at thinking about this notion of ruptures, what does it mean to interrupt the legal process, nor will they look at the whole machinery of speech acts, citations, repetitions, when do we know when something new happens. To me, all of which are absolutely fundamentally significant also in places like Palestine. And I'd like to come back to that um, because we are talking about in Palestine in a situation where through using the language that we use this morning through colonizing and an apartheid, we are talking about a people that have been sequestered in, in a particular territory who are not addressed as subjects with rights, um, who are treated as subjects who arrive from nowhere and are welcome to go anywhere, but not in this territory. Anyway, I can give you... So then how do, we, how do we ascribe citizenship to subjects who are caught in this particular constellation? Do we use citizenship for that? Do we actually think of another term to describe their um, condition? Uh, my I have responses to that, but it really requires theorizing through these concepts, which of course cannot do the, in this seminar. Uh, it takes a long time to go through all that machinery of rupture. So when you ask questions, I might be able to elaborate uh, more. But I just want to walk you through some of its principles. Then it can open up um, discussion for us. Now, some of the principles are, um, for example, we say that um, 
in investigating acts specifically, where do you start? If, if thinking about citizen, acts of citizenship is different than status and habitus, where do you start? So one of the methodological principles that we have come about, uh, we have really, um, I think, invest, uh, invested uh, time, is that one starts with an event. Events are really significant. Events in which bodies are put on the line and bodies take risks. That's really important. Tesk, take, and by taking risks, rupture, interrupt the given order of things. Certainly, the first intifada and second intifada could be creatively thought through as acts of citizenship, acts of Palestinian citizenship. It involved violence, but that violence also had certain logic to it and certain method to it, and certainly it was not um, random, and all the things that are associated with sort of, sort of non-political activity. Then I'm placed also in certain uh, platforms, do you then think suicide bombing is an act of citizenship? So we can come to that and discuss that. Um, I have actually written a paper about that, whether we should think about suicide bombing is an act of citizenship. Tricky and very dangerous, but it is. it requires the risk on the part of researchers to think through whether it is to be included or not. Um, so then the question of the event, and the invention of an event. Even if one does not accept suicide bombing as an act of citizenship, rejects it categorically, one cannot deny the fact that it invented a repertoire. It invented a form of action through an event. And this is the interesting thing about events, that it creates a repertoire, and then it becomes citable, iterable, repeatable, and nameable. And certainly Intifada has also done that. Um, then it becomes also questions, what other repertoires were we are able to invent? What repertoires are being invented today in Palestine becomes to me like a significant question. So number one is to start with events that stopped everyone in their tracks and made them think, oh, this is new. Huh? Something new has begun here. Sometimes, though, it doesn't happen at the moment. And I will come to that. So when we say events, uh, the requirement on researchers is not within 10 minutes of the event to be able to identify it. Sometimes it takes years. So there, hence significance of also historical work. Some events that has instigated certain repertoires in the past, it takes decades to identify them, actually something new happened then. And there was a new repertoire, new way of acting. It shifted. Something new began. From hindsight, you identify that. So the, the question of event is really significant. So it's a, it's a um, um, temporal category, but also it's a, it's a spatial category event. So thinking through the event is important. The second one, the important site 
of contestation, when sight is not a place or a space. So, to give you an example, like city of Ramallah is, is a place. It has spaces in it. Some spaces are dangerous. Some spaces are uh, risky. I'm just giving, some spaces are enjoyable. Some spaces are space of pleasure, and so on. So it's a place within which there are various categories of spaces. But a site, something becoming a site of contestation becomes through the confluence of it becoming the, the place and space of an event. So events produce sites of contestation. So we cannot think of sites outside what events produce those sites. But once events produce sites, those sites don't have inherent qualities like unlike places and spaces, you know, spaces of pleasure in Ramallah can change over time. It's their symbolism, who frequent them and so on. But once a site becomes a site, it becomes invested with symbolism, what it indicates, and so on. So for example, I don't know from history, but I am sure there is a site when Intifada began. It can be identified. Because that's when that rupture of an event was enacted. We can identify that. So a site becomes significant, and then the site itself becomes cited and repeated. There are other sites of con confrontation can uh, come into being. So this is important aspect of thinking through acts. So if you're beginning to think acts of citizenship, you need to first start with an event, articulating you know eventness of the event, when it happened, how it happened, and so on, and what site it produces. The next question: What symbolism has been invented with that eventness of the site? That's important. And this is all just really as beginning to theorize um, what act of citizenship came into being in that particular uh, space. And then, sight not also is not enough, because events, when they rupture given order of things, with their eventness, render a particular place into a site where it's symbolically invested, they also trigger scales of reaction to it. Scale is never local, never global, never. It, it just traverses these scales. So one has to understand what was the scale of this. I mean, scale of Intifada truly was local, global at the same time, and national, and regional. But it traversed them. Some of them reta uh, retain very local scales. Some of them become regional. Some of them instantly are global, um, that site of contestation. We can give many examples of that, not necessarily from acts of citizenship, by the way. Uh, something that over the years I've learned, I draw out examples from acts that I don't necessarily mean that they're acts of citizenship, then I get into trouble later but you said that this was an act of citizenship. Well, actually, I didn't. That was an example of an act. Charlie Abdo killing 12 uh, journalists. 
I will categorically deny that that was an act of citizenship. I will not be persuaded. That form of violence was not an act of citizenship, but it was an act. It was an act. It, there was an eventness to it. It signified a particular site. It was global, but it was a pure act of violence. So then that means I'm able to distinguish in, under certain circumstances an act of violence from an act of citizenship, but I can't do that categorically. Only in certain specific cases, acts, we are able to do that. Then, um, finally, the, the fourth category, events, sites, scales, the fourth category of thinking, and thank God this is not a trinity, this aspect of thinking methodologically about acts. There is a fourth one. And the fourth one is, is also a category of temporality. How does, how long does an act endure? Now this is very interesting because sometimes people think that acts are one-off things. And therefore, if they don't have enduring qualities, they can't be properly really citizenship because citizenship has to endure. Um, it has to also to be transferred from generation to another generation. Um, that's only when we can say that we have contributed to something larger than ourselves. And it is true. There is certain durability, uh, endurance to act. So one has to um, um, articulate, for example, this young man buying um, lands with money he didn't have illegally and being imprisoned. Do we really think of that? Does it have durability? Is it repeatable? I mean, is it really a good repertoire? Can we repeat it? Can we go into other uh, auctions and, and bid and buy things and it has a value? These are open questions. I'm not sure. So in that sense, maybe it's a weak act of citizenship. Maybe it's a random act of citizenship. Maybe we shouldn't think of it as also act of citizenship. It's an act of civil disobedience as the, the man himself. Argue. But these are analytical questions that has to be like empirically investigated, sociologically interrogated, anthropo anthropologically uh, researched, politically thought through. So there are no, that's why I call these principles as methodological. Uh, but in all, of the, in, in all of this, one principle really is significant. And what I call this activist citizenship or activism in citizenship. Now, there is a venerable <coughs> uh, term in particular political theory, but especially this is one gift of French political theory to the world, um, and that word is active citizenship. Um, and making it, and it comes from French Revolution, and clearly delineating the value of being an active citizen, that means the second concept in our idea of subjectivity, that citizenship held passively perhaps is, perhaps is not worth holding. Because it is held passively, is not worth much. It has to be actively practiced, therefore the significance of active citizenship. Now, I wanted to play a little bit with French theory and say that all that is fine, but what are we going to do with people who are actively engaging with citizenship that they don't have? Because French citizenship 
when it's a French theory making that distinction, its idea is that those citizens who already have the legal status of citizenship, amongst them who are holding it passively, in some way should be held in contempt. Hmm? Even it doesn't say explicitly say so, there is an implicit, there is a contemptuous, contemptuous attitude toward those who hold it passively. Citizenship is a value we inherit from the Enlightenment with French Revolution, and those who just don't actively practice it, they are doomed to lose it. So, for example, one of the things important about post-Charlie Hebdo uh, French demonstration in Paris was universally valued precisely because of that. You'll see many, many, many people saying that the real value of that 1.7 million uh, citizens of all types took to the streets and reminded themselves of the significance of active citizenship, that it is only by... But it doesn't say anything about the non-citizens. So I played with that and said, well, the non-citizens, when they practice their citizenship, actively engage, perform it, we shall call that activist citizenship, when they engage activist citizenship. So I added IST to active uh, to make to make that inflection. So that really captures quite well. So when we talk about activist citizenship, taking it to that new level. It works very nicely with also now the entire social movements, literature, activists, transnational activists, and so on. It raises questions uh, to what extent and when we should call um, transnational activists as activist citizenship. And the question arises, is citizenship the proper category for transnational activists when it traverses various legal orders, several countries, they are not citizens of, citizens, they are not citizens of any one of them, to what extent it should be considered citizens, does human rights protect them, it raises all these questions. So just to wrap up, and considering that I have really, really merely scratched the surface, but I hope I have provided you know, a background, a context in which why this way of thinking about citizenship came about, what we try to do with this way of thinking about citizenship, who does it address? I think it addresses Palestinians, it addresses Roma, it addresses um, uh, sex workers, it uh, addresses Kurdish people, it addresses indigenous people, it addresses illegal immigrants, it addresses refugees, it addresses people who are practically denied of citizenship status in wherever they happen to find themselves, though in different ways. You know, Palestinians are not Kurds, Kurds not, are not indigenous people, recognizing these fundamental differences. So the point is, how they perform citizenship is to be studied, needs to be studied. And then poses the question, should we not consider them activist citizens? Now this way of citizenship, lest you think mainstream or accepted or even known, is not the case. This is very important to understand. So I'm speaking from the margins about the margins. Let's not make mistakes about that. Uh, in many places I go, you know, uh, there will be people 
you know, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Paris, whether it's in Rome, whether it's in Berlin, this way of thinking about citizenship is, if not completely alien, at least, um, at least not recognizable to many citizenship studies scholars. That's important. But this is also a political choice. I don't necessarily find it problematic to speak from the margins when I'm speaking to margins. That, to me, does not constitute an analytical or political question, but it is a problem when you begin to think that this is how citizenship studies operates. It doesn't. It's, it's still, if I were to map citizenship studies today, predominantly the mainstream um, thinking is still uh, considering citizenship as status, passport rights, distribution of rights in given uh, jurisdictions, and, and analysis stops there. And, and another group that looks at subjectivity and habitus is another marginal group, but it is growing and it has significant um, uh, following, significant um, uh, practitioners, as it were. And the act is definitely in the margins and minority. And that's important to put on the, uh, on the table. So this is the background and the context of a, a, a sort of different way of thinking about citizenship. So maybe in the second part of the seminar we can um, uh, switch to thank you um, switch to um, thinking about um, in areas that you know how this kind of thinking uh, speaks to uh, what perhaps its shortcomings. Even, you know, you can say that on the basis of what, I've, what I have said, there are shortcomings. You didn't address this, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about that. So we can think creatively um, how we may also address, for example, questions of Palestinian citizenship in terms of acts of Palestinian citizenship. So maybe I should stop there and then we should just move on to that discussion. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, uh, Engin, for this uh, very uh, enlightening uh, presentation and, and very detailed one. Okay. So now I leave the floor to the discussion, to the question that you might have, the input you will have for sure. I have many questions. <laughs> <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> I mean, on this first part, before going to the second part, I mean, I would like to, I apologize, I maybe, I was maybe distracted, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand the difference you make between citizens, I, I, if I understood well, these three perspectives on citizenship you mentioned at the beginning are, uh, citizenship as a status, then as habitus, and then as acts of citizenship. Mm. This is the third. And what is the difference you make between habitus and acts? If I habitus and acts, the, the difference is, of course, acts thinking relies on or draws from habitus because that also brings issues of subjectivity, how people inhabit, and I particularly mentioned sociological and uh, 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 anthropological in the sense of Moss and, uh, and later with Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, yeah, yeah, Pierre Bourdieu is uh, how people begin to embody 
that subject position of citizenship. Now, the main difference, which does not apply to everyone, so there are some studies that cross this, but there are very few, but m most uh, uh, of the studies look at those who are already citizens. So they are inhabiting the citizen subject position that they legally hold. So the question arises with ACTS thinking, but what about when people occupy that subject position illegally? Illegally in, a, in any given frame. That's, of course, the rupture, and it's often is an event. You know, when a, a person really occupies the subject's position of uh, citizen as a non-citizen, um, he or she experiences the force of law using their, the, the full force of law as punishment and so on because then it becomes an event, an act. That's the difference. Um, should I, um, like, or you want to chair? Okay. You said you have many questions. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Let's also, keep coming yeah. back to them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, go, go ahead. Um, I have two questions. One slip out of my mind of the second one statement. Um, and you'll see where I'm coming from. I mean, obviously this theoretical framework works very well with um, the stateless people. And then when you were speaking, this occurred to my mind. Can it be that this logic of stages, yeah, more stages than habitus, I would say that is prevailing sort of or gets contradictory to such an extent that is actually um, maybe um, lessening the possibility of acts of citizenship. And I would like to rephrase that because I'm, I'm thinking aloud. Um, I've been working on this Bedouin and there has been this new way to study it in a different way, which is the statelessness program, which is uh, very loadable, but at the same time with sort of things citizenship whereby they can erase this statelessness pockets and everybody will be like kind of citizens and these kind of things and to me feels like the way to approach kind of uh, almost contradict the way the stateless understood as illegal or in the position of, of, of illegal can perform of acts of citizenship but this is just like I'm delivering you th mm -hmm. my thoughts about that um, and the second one I was asking, but this has to do with what you sort of mentioned yesterday. I understand that the access is value in itself, but then um, when you talk about these suitability, uh, replicability, does, does it really matter what you obtained or um, how would you... I mean, I know you differentiate yesterday means from ends, but at some point, if you want to claim rights uh, and you're just in the position of claiming them, well, of course, there are some success stories that have take, been taken again, like the Cine Vabeles or something. Mm. We know somehow, you know, we reach a special aim. Does that, I mean, does that influence at all this idea of replicability? I guess mm. that was my two questions. Mm. Um, very quickly on the first one, yeah, I mean, thanks for that elaboration. I think uh, thinking in terms of only in 
status and the legal complexity of uh, citizenship in some ways also inhibits understanding, even uh, understanding of subjects, self-understanding of subjects, you know, constantly being addressed as merely legal subjects. In fact, we, we talked about some examples of that over the last uh, three days with various organizations and, and, and uh, um, academics that we have met. Um, how, for example, Palestinians are um, uh, um, um, imposed to occupy certain positions because legal arguments have been made that this is uh, this is what needs to be done the, the legal framework and uh, also Emilio was discussing it with respect to human rights but you know how being uh, embodied in or or integrated into a legal framework even subjects may find themselves to be performing positions that they did not even want they did not even imagine in the first place but law has that impact on our legal status. So that's why I think the distinctions are significant, uh, making how does citizen subjectivity come into being ought not to be reduced to merely legal subjectivity, though recognizing the significance of it. That's really the, the precise uh, position. Um, does it really matter that acts are repeated is really an uh, important question because Often people say that exactly that the weak link, weak aspect of theorizing acts is that it gives this appearance of one-off. And, and one-off acts, if they're not repeated, if they don't become enduring, if they don't become, if they don't acquire qualities of repertoires, then they are like lost in ether, right? They're, they just, there's no value to them. As political, so for example, the tank man in in, in China protest uh, in 1989 during Tiananmen Square, right? Like a one-off act, a shopping, a shopper throws himself in front of a tank. But why you want to call this act of citizenship? It's it can't be repeated. It's highly unlikely that a similar situation will ever. Um, I think I've come to the position that actually it does matter. Iterability and repeatability and their endurability, it does matter. Because acts, for us to be able to call things acts, they have to acquire certain repertoire uh, qualities that subsequent activists can draw strength from. Because you can't assume that each generation of activists are going to start from ground zero. There has to be, you know, repertoires where you say, you know, these repertoires we have built through generations, we have invested in them, we found some of them useful, some of them so less useful, some of them actually harmful. We are abandoning the harmful ones, they serve their purpose. The ones that are useful we, we would like to, you know, there's that kind of um, political theorizing, political strategizing over acts would be impossible if we think of them as merely one-off events. That's why I think eventness of acts is important, but there's also logic to um, the reason why I think we eventually were compelled not to call them events of citizenship. Because you can call events of citizenship, they can be, yeah, there's so many events that are about citizenship, but they, are, they have not sedimented into acts. I think it's important to maintain that sedimentation 
That's why Judith Butler was important. Iteration, citation, repetition, and, and resignification. It, it gets resignified, but something is building. Huh? That's really important. It's, that's something that's building. Also, in terms of mobilizing, now I'm speaking personal experience as an activist. In terms of mobilizing others, it is much more effective to be able to appeal to people to get involved in a political thing if you can demonstrate to them that there, is, there are repertoires you're drawing from and that these repertoires are worth investing in. It, it has effective um, quality. It, it appeals to people, right? And it is important to have effective addressing of other people. Um, there is actually a very good discussion about this between Judith Butler and an, an activist in a little book called uh, Dispossession. And a lot of the discussion actually revolves around Palestinian uh, issues. Uh, if you remind me, I will uh, give you uh, the PDF. I have the PDF. It's a good, uh, it's recorded interviews. She does similar, say, she does say similar things about this uh, repetition, performativity, and drawing on. It's important in activism. Yeah, um, I would like to, to, to make two comments and two questions, uh, and to ask two questions. But the, fir the first comment maybe is the most general one, and, 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 and it will take maybe the, the shape of a critique. Um, uh, why? Why is that you seem to suggest without any, almost without any problem, a sort of naturalization of the citizenship as a, an, a, a state affair? You, um, you were saying, um, you know, uh, uh, is the, the citizenship is ter territorialized. Uh, it depends on the state, is the state uh, the entity giving it to you and somehow allowing you to enact uh, whatever citizenship it is. Um, but this is a problem of citizenship. Mm. I mean, a problem that can, one can evaluate and criticize. And, and I think Hannah Arendt is what, what, what she does in this chapter on the on the nation state and the decline of the rest mm. man, mm. right? Uh, she calls it a paradox. Mm. And the paradox being that uh, um, uh, first is rights and then citizenship. We thought about citizenship and political theories thought about citizenship as a way of implementing rights. Mm. Uh, um, and, but rights were thought as rights of men. Mm. Never, they were never thought as rights of citizens, and that came from the character of uh, universal and absolute that we allocated or attributed to the rights. So, uh, you you seem to suggest that this is perfectly natural, mm. when in reality some people like Hannah Arendt will say this is a paradox, this is a contradiction, this is a problem that should be addressed because a citizenship. In fact, when, when one thinks about effectively citizenship does not have any value without the notion of rights. Uh, even even in, in whatever of the categories you or the perspective you were advancing, 
as status, as habitus, or uh, as art, we uh, we perform acts of citizenship in order to to fight for rights or to exercise rights. So the notion of citizenship doesn't have any value without the notion of rights. And, and rights were rights of men, not rights of citizens. So I see a certain, at least a paradox, I would say a contradiction and, and a failure. No? Mm. But you seem to, to go through it as a natural thing. Citizenship is territorialized. The state is the one who, uh, which, uh, gives you or attributes you the status and so I would like you to elaborate on that mm -hmm. and if you mm -hmm. see any any problem in that. The, the second comment has to do with the again the apparent um, naturality with which you seem to exclude from uh, citizenship violence. Even though I notice that you made some nuances about that. I, I, I got the impression that you were reticent to uh, include among acts of citizenship violent acts. And I have a problem with that because uh, um, uh, there are cases, and you were saying that yesterday, citizenship and the ways in which we enact them and perform them and exercise them uh, are, and practice them depends on places and context, it's never the same here and there, etc. And in the case of Palestine, um, I think uh, there is a huge space for acting, performing citizenship through violence. Uh, I think violence is perfectly legitimate in, in certain circumstances, and, and even our legal frames recognize the, the, the legitimacy of violence in many cases. I mean, self-killing in self-defense is one of them. A death sentence or penalty is one is another one. But even uh, the more general one of uh, uh, resistance to oppression, you know, is is a, a, a violent act, but perfectly legitimate from a legal point of view, not only from a political one, and therefore perfectly conceivable as a, a an act of citizenship. Um, uh, but um, um, so yes, that, that are my two comments, and and the questions are, um, what what do you do? Because you 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 refer to the perspective of citizenship as habitus, as uh, especially for those who already have a citizenship and are inha inhabiting it, with, almost without any problematic, but we are seeing today, and I think that will uh, sharpen with time, and this is what we have seen, for example, in France, uh, that citizenship is also precarious, uh, even in liberal democracies like uh, European uh, so-called liberal democracies. Uh, you know, France, for example, had, had has advanced, or some deputies have, have, have advanced laws, uh, have, have introduced laws, laws in the parliament to revoke the citizenship of a citizen having killed a police officer, which is politically very problematic because one has from outside immediately the impression that he's targeting, like the law on the veil, mm. a certain section of the population. Mm. I don't imagine. Uh, Sarkozy or any of them revoking the citizenship of uh, Monsieur Le Pen, or mm -hmm. no, it will be for immigrants. Or so. so there is a, uh, the, 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 
precariousness of citizenship today. Uh, uh, sharpen and, and, and more acute, especially after 9-11, I think. Um, and the last comment is um, that the citizenship that we are uh, performing or enacting today uh, seems to be a very liberal citizenship. Mm. Um, and I would like you to, to if you can, or uh, if the question makes sense for you, to elaborate a little bit about that. Um, it's a very liberal notion of citizenship that is not banal. No? I mean, uh, depending on the perspective we have on citizenship, we enact some acts and not other acts. And we, and we fight for a certain conception of society and not other conception of society. Um, um, uh, how this liberal citizenship plays along with uh, uh, with certain political economy agendas, uh, neoliberalism, restructuration of economies in Europe, um, uh, precariousness, social and economic precariousness, uh, demobi political demobilization because of this very nuclear, atomistic way of looking at citizenship and therefore breaking social and political solidarities, etc. If you could elaborate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Emilio. That's a lot of questions you put on the table, but I will try. Um, um, the first one is, as you said, that you know, when I speak about citizenship, there's a certain natural uh, sound to it, that I'm not paying enough attention to its paradoxical elements. Um, um, I mean, in, in some ways, um, this, is, this has to do with, um, let me just think through uh, the idea of how to think with concepts um, that I'm particularly influenced by Derrida's notion of uh, clearly also influenced by Austin and resignification but also inflected with his notion of uh, deconstruction or using concepts under erasure. Um, and the problem is this. Um, however paradoxical, when we are articulating thoughts on political events and political practices, um, our first port of call is the available vocabulary with which that politics is pursued. When we pick up that available vocabulary, we pick it up under erasure, meaning not necessarily by making a commitment to in its current meaning and inflection, but at the same time, not knowing yet what alternative concept we would use, still continuing to use it by resignifying it. It's inflecting it differently. Until such time when uh, discourse may reach a certain level where we may actually have a different name for it. Then, the vocabulary with which we began can fade away. I think of citizenship in a similar way. If sometimes it looks as though, it sounds as though I am holding a non-paradoxical, non-problematic conception of citizenship, because I already sort of feel um, um, confident that we are in the business of resignifying it. But the sense of resignification is that vocabulary that we are picking up that stands for political subjectivity today 
because we are living still in the age of modern state, modern nation states, which is much more deeply ingrained in our lives than political theories and political concepts. We're picking up a vocabulary at a time when we don't really have an alternative vocabulary for um, um, uh, understanding political subjectivity, at least to my satisfaction. Um, there are people who are anarchists who think that, you know, uh, do away with all vocabularies. We have our own vocabulary of this and that, political organization, assemblies, and so on. Why don't we think of that? But time and again, I come back to politics of citizenship as legally constituted and the significance of it. And so we are at a time where we're picking up the political vocabulary of citizenship as a stand-in for particular form of political subjectivity, the way in which people take up politics, aspire to invest in, until such time political discourse may or may not reach a certain densification, condensation, where things that we want to describe can be described with another word. And at which time citizenship can fade away. I am completely confident, uh, sort of happy with that. But at this moment is not that moment. So this is um, the way I think about that notion of uh, I may not be uh, paying attention to its paradoxical quality, but in this resignification, when I use citizenship, it's already beyond what is understood as citizenship. So I have already uh, twisted it, as it were. And yet I'm using it as though it's natural, right? But this is the politics of resignification. It sounds natural, something I know that it is not. That's why my comment about, lest you think, you know, this is natural, let's remember that, you know, there's mainstream thought about this, would find all of this alien, right? That's why I made that comment. But in context like this, I'm using it as though it is natural. So there is politics of resignification is taking place until such time political vocabulary gains new con condensation. If you allow me to, to be fair, in yeah. fact, I, I, I just realized that your distinction may account for Arendt's paradox, because precisely the third, the third, which cancel my question, mm. Because the third um, perspective, which is uh, the third perspective, which is acts of citizenship mm. and being uh, being um, perfectly the site of mm. uh, non-citizens, mm. uh, mm. which is exactly the paradox of uh, which uh, yeah. are in the nouns, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, it no. may it may cancel the question. Yeah. No, but it, it is an important question that it keeps coming back. And I think also the development... You're prepared for it. Hmm? You're, you were prepared for it because you're extremely convincing, I think, in the way you twisted the vocabulary, which mm. is true. I mean, it, um, it even, it applies yeah. even stronger on acts, on the word act, mm. more, uh, uh, not only on citizen or citizenship. Mm. Uh, uh, literally speaking, act is deem or perform mm. or law. And again, here, acts of citizenship, we're talking about another kind of paradox on, a, on another trinity, mm. more than a dichotomy. Mm. Mm. Um, 
I agree with both uh, Claire and, and um, Carol. Carol, but it's important to ask this question. I think because it allows us to take a step back, also reflect on politics or working with concepts. And I think it is important to be reflexive about it. It is good to be to have like a um, tension-filled relationship to this concept because it, I think it is important not to appear <laughs> that we are unproblematically invested in it. That is important. Which brings me actually to your third question. I want to um, just jump to and then come back to the other, the liberal citizenship. Because if if this naturalized version is enacted too much, performed too much, then it begin to uh, lose its sharp difference from liberal citizenship. This is by no means liberal citizenship because liberal citizenship first the question of individual rights. Uh, in liberal citizenship there is very little um, space for example acting for the rights of others. Uh, um, you can petition for yours and law re represents that. That law exists as a political, uh, sorry, collective product but it is for me. Uh, whereas here, a collective sense of accomplishment through acts and being also able to act for the rights of others. Um, because of that, I think it is important to emphasize and denaturalize uh, uh, citizenship. Um, on violence in citizenship, um, I would like to take the nuanced uh, position that you articulated so well. I think now I want to articulate what that is. Categorically, it is problematic to think that violence should be eliminated from the possibility of acts of citizenship. That cannot be done categorically. That is everywhere, anywhere, however. It has to be historically and geographically specific and under certain conditions there can be acts of citizenship that draw on violent repertoires. That's why chose Intifada as an example of it. Under these contexts, I think Intifada was an act of citizenship. But I'm less sure about suicide bombing, and I'm less sure about other repertoires. So it's not even place and time specific, but repertoire specific. Like we have to think about what it is able to accomplish, what justices it addresses, what injustices it incurs, and what potentialities it brings about and what impossibilities it throws us into. It has to be discussed. But categorically to say violence should be eliminated from acts of citizenship, I cannot agree with that. Especially because, uh, I mean, there is the, 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 the distinction between uh, um, non-violence, or, or, or sorry, or violence and law as the icon or paradigmatic example of non-violent means is an illusory one, right? Yeah. By law does not exclude violence. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one can perfectly make the point yeah. that therefore citizenship may not exclude violence. Yeah. Let's take it a step further. Citizenship always does include violence is what I because see. the very instituting moment of the state is violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not only or right self-determination. The very instituted moment of self-determination is yes. historically been a violent moment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
So citizenship does include that. Um, so it's a, it becomes a question of, then the political position is, if we are actually instituted by political communities, which we call the states, that are inherently founded on violence, under what conditions we are going to also break the cycle? And where we are going to say um, certain uh, violent acts are impermissible, uh, and it excludes the repertoires, and that we are determined to uh, nurture these non-violent ones. You know, that, that's also an important thing. Um, one thing I think would be dangerous is that because the political community, which is called state, is founded on violence, that, that gives us um, uh, justification to think anything that serves certain ends as, uh, through violence as justified. You know, that's also a tricky position. That, um, and then finally, um, oh, the, the precarity of citizenship, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, citizenship itself is a precarious institution. That's why I think it's important uh, in terms of uh, acts, because in Britain also, I mean, the example you gave um, was a brilliant one. Another example is in Britain, for example, now, social rights that used to be the cardinal aspects of rights of being modern uh, British citizen are practically being eliminated one by one through austerity and political economy of uh, austerity. And so now it is becoming like an act of citizenship to claim the right to benefits or, or health, which used to be considered just taken for granted. So citizenship itself precarious, and it is that precarity I think also makes it such a significant institution to critically interrogate and engage with. That's what I mean by this is the um, political vocabulary which we're inheriting at the moment. We have to work through this. This is what the states also use. What um, regulates much of citizenship today in Britain is not nationality law, it's labor law, health law, um, associations law, you know, series of laws that don't have citizenship. And yet it is passing through um, the regime of citizenship. I think I touched on all your questions. Yeah, I have some questions. First about the, I mean, the thing you said at the end of your conference yesterday, and that is in your paper today. I understood more today what you were meaning, talking about citizens without frontiers, though I would like you please to elaborate on that, what do you mean? And then there is a question which is related to it maybe, that these acts of citizenships are not only, but mainly addressed towards states, two states. I mean, I mean the, the queries are, 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 are asked to states or so there is the, this question, to what level? I mean, is, there is a contestation of the state and at the same time uh, a kind of way of asking rights to this same state, this mm. one of this one or another one. Mm. So the question would be, uh, what is the level to which maybe these acts could be addressed if there is no state or if the state is not considered as the qualified entity at the end? I mean as a political perspective, as you're, in a way, saying not really, I don't know, it's not clear, so... Uh, okay. Yeah. 
Okay, um, the first question about, the, 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 these two are related, but there are two questions, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, on the first question, um, Citizens Without Frontiers, um, I wanted to capture the potentiality of political subjectivity to cross borders without permission from states and establish solidarities and thus enacting citizenship. And my point in the book is that this happens a lot more than, when, than we realize. That's why my insistence on keep going back to acts, events, is that this is already happening. People are taking these risks. People are from death to injury to loss of job to deportation, you name it, people are taking risks and putting their bodies on the line, or even better phrase, they're putting their bodies across the line and, and exposing themselves. So let's learn from this, this courageous investments of people and whether we can learn something. And there, um, there is a very nice phrasing of Butler I used for this, that they are actually acting without prior, um, without prior, oh, I now can't remember, it's in the book, without prior permission from the state, they are breaking a convention, acting. So there are so many examples of this. Um, I mean, I think you have to give me examples from Palestine. There are so many, these kinds of cross-border. Cross-border, though, I mean, that's why I use the term frontier, is that cross-border, not only just like state boundaries. Sometimes these borders and boundaries are social, sometimes symbolic, sometimes, um, sometimes cultural. These borders and boundaries are not just simply physical boundaries. Anymore. That's why I wanted to use the term uh, frontiers. When one crosses, I mean, you know, it's, it's so well known that it sounds trite now, but you know, Rachel Corey is a good example. I'm still, you know, th that is a crossing, like putting her body across the line yeah, the and book. taking the risk, right? And that is really significant. It's important to remember that, yes, so much has been said about it and so on, but let's not get jaded because certain examples are repeated. Let's not become jaded about them. Let's, uh, let's think about that. That's one example. There are so many examples of that. So I want to capture that, citizens without frontiers, without prior permission from an existing convention that breaks that convention, ruptures it, and crosses the body across the line. Right? That, that's really um, significant. Would you include in that um, European citizens turn into militants against Assad's regime in Syria? I mean, uh, it's, really good, it's a really good question. I thought about that. Um, it's just someone publicly has not been asked yet, and I'm waiting for it to happen. More directly, the question is, would you con consider jihadis as citizens without frontiers? <laughs> Which is something that we celebrated some de decades ago with uh, political internationalism, right? I mean, That's the, right. The, 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 the Spanish civil war was done by Italians, yeah. Uh, yeah. French, uh, British, uh, yeah. and we celebrated that. Yeah. And today, and critically, we seem to condemn. Yeah. And I don't understand exactly yeah. why. 
except for the fact that it, it is helping someone we don't like. Yeah. yeah, let me deal with this formally and substantively. Formally, it is citizenship without frontiers. They're crossing the borders, they're putting their bodies on the line, they're taking risks, and they are doing this for ideals and for the rights of others. You cannot claim jihadis to be working for themselves. You know, individual rights taking to courts and they want to be... It's not liberal citizenship, right? Formally, this is a citizenship without frontier in that form, like Spanish res resistance. Substantively, um, it isn't. I have a problem with the substance of their ideals. Um, they're underwriting or making investment in murderous state that it is intensifying the fact that the state is found, founded on violence. They are ten times multiplying that. That murderous violence has um, various elements of randomness, uh, brutality, and undirectedness that I cannot agree with. And finally, what it institutes itself on the basis of some Quran-directed Islamic State as caliphate is completely corrupt. It's completely um, um, uh, uh, barbaric and completely it has nothing to do with uh, what we've come to understand, for example, what was happening in Spain for collective rights, organizing our collectively uh, for international peace and finding a space for Spain in international order of peace and uh, socialist government. So this substantively, substantively, it's a very different ideal. In what sense can any one of its principles, if it is articulated clearly at all, can be justified and argued for, I have severe doubts. It's on that sense, it's in that sense that I would really find hard, uh, that, uh, hard to describe citizens without frontiers. <clears throat> to add to that, there's also the difficulty of whether an Islamic state organized through a caliphate would have any conception of citizenship, even a resignified and inflected one, with um, an understanding of certain rights, is a question, is a big question. So it's not clear what's it about. It's clear what it um, kind of acts that it perpetrates. And for these reasons, I cannot really bear myself to say that it is substantively a citizenship without frontiers. Plus the fact that they, I completely agree with what you say, but plus the fact that they completely, in a way, they contributed to destroy part of the revolution. Like, I mean, there is an history in that also. I think that maybe we could consider the first jihadis that entered Syria, even Jabhat al-Nusra and the first phase, as being maybe, uh, I mean, uh, citizen without uh, frontiers, but then it shifted and it started to be fight within the revolution movement, and it started to have another kind of position as soon also as the Islamic State has entered the picture. So I think also maybe you could look at it in phases, mm. and that the evolution is not towards that. I mean, yeah. You know, can, can I disagree from that? And just for the sake of the argument, I'm not uh, personally affected by the fate of the Islamic State, but uh, it's just to understand. Because there is, I see some problem with that. It's that the, the critique that uh, you are uh, addressing 
was exactly the critique that communists were addressing during the, the Spanish Civil War against anarchists. Mm. They had denaturalized the, the, the fight, they were counterproductive, uh, they were reaching levels of, uh, of uh, violence that was completely unprecedented and unjustified. But they are fighting within themselves. And, 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 and then communists and anarchists in the, the Spanish Civil War were killing each other. Is, yeah. in, in, in factual terms, there is no difference. So, so the second question is, so we would accept only as act of citizenship those acts with which we agree substantively. What about uh, someone act enacting or performing an act of citizenship with which we don't agree substantively? Uh, uh, no, I think that the latter possibility is there. If, even if you don't agree with substantively, right. the, uh, there is a possibility. But in terms of um, Islamic State, it's not a question of disagreement or even uh, dislike. Um, it's a political and philosophical principle issue. Just consider whether, I'm now asking for myself, I can uh, sign uh, myself into a project that claims to be based on uh, Quran, a particular interpretation of Quran, instituting a, um, a, a caliphate um, and a state founded on principles that are already articulated. No. My understanding of political activism is precisely to remain open to negotiated aspect of political articulation. There is no such, there is a founding element of any political community has to be negotiation. Uh, whether you want to call it dialogue, negotiation and struggle. Now, the struggle has to be pursued through various means. It has to include certain protocols of uh, mutual understanding, citizenship, concepts of rights, and so on. That Those are even uh, negotiable, but that has to be on the basis of principles that have been reached via uh, uh, negotiation of the conditions in which we find ourselves. In Spain, it was that. Um, the, the Spanish proposition is that we find ourselves in the, in the vice of in international capitalism. International capitalism is making impossible, making it impossible to develop our human capacities and it is delivering us over to an exploitative class system where some people benefit much more than others and the masses are suffering and it is here and now we are going to say no to this and we are going to institute a system based on Marxist principles, negotiated new property relations and equality for classes. Although I am myself not communist, which um, uh, comes into the, your second part of your question, I am not a communist but I would agree with it because it is based on that principle of collective articulation of a negotiated settlement. Where do we find that in ISIS? Right? Um, the second thing, ISIS does not want to eliminate violence even when it succeeds to institute itself. It wants to maintain violence within the boundaries of the state when it uh, succeeds to establish it. It accepts violence as the condition of the state, permanent condition of the state. Um, it, communists were not using violence that way in Spain. 
violence was justified, as you said earlier, on the grounds of being violence being inflicted on them and for self-defense. So there was no acceptance of violence as a permanent condition of the state which it wanted to institute. No, the violence was until such time when Spain could be liberated from capitalism and the vice of international um, capital and imperialism. That, you know, again, I don't necessarily agree with the final end, but I cannot argue that um, citizens without frontiers, those who crossed the boundaries and fought for that, are citizens without frontiers. I don't find those principles in an Islamic state in caliphate and any, any uh, arrangement that is going to be on a book. I cannot. You see what I mean? Maybe you want to call me a secular in this in this regard, or anti-religious. But no, I mean it's I, I have my own religious uh, convictions. I have my own uh, non-secular beliefs. But when it comes to articulating a political community, uh, basing it on the basis of a book whose interpretation will, will always be negotiable. That. To base it on a book that even negotiation, um, interpretation of it is non-negotiable, is non-acceptable. It's unacceptable. I see your point. Hmm. It's too late to... <laughs> <laughs> to enter into this. Yeah, to, to ask my questions or making my comments. I'll, I'll try to make it short. I, I'm, I'm a historian and uh, I... I mean, I don't deal with political theory. I, I do use it from time to time. And, and I'm trying to be more empirical to history of Palestine. Um, I mean, you spoke about citizenship. Your focus is the uh, citizenship. And I, I want to take it to the issue of hierarchy of citizenship. For instance, in, in Israel since 48, some people think that Israel was perfect democratic state until 67, but only after 67 it became occupation and apartheid or whatever <coughs> they define it. But actually, until 66 also there was the military government, some people forget that, and actually it was kind of occupation of the Palestinians who are citizens, who became formally citizens of Israel. I'm one of right. them. I'm one of them, so that's why I'm, I'm dealing with this uh, topic. now. In, in, in this situation of Israel, particularly after 67, we have this hierarchy where you have Jews as full and meaningful citizens. You have a, a Palestinians in Israel who are formally citizens, but they don't have meaningful citizens, mm -hmm. citizenship. And they can revoke their citizenship by one way or another. And you can hear ministers who want to be part of the West Bank rather being part of Israel. And this is the foreign minister and he's saying that 10 years, it's just one time. And then you have the residents of Jerusalem who can ask for citizenship, but mostly they don't and, and, and so on and so forth. And then you have the West Bank and Gaza and so on and so forth. My question is, because there is debate and discussion about uh, this issue, how, how we categorize Israel today? And I want like a short answer. <laughs> you, do, do you define it as more colonial uh, regime, state, or settler colonial, or rather an apartheid regime? Hmm. 
I think it's... Or maybe democratic, if you think that, that it's perfectly <laughs> democratic. <laughs> definitely not democratic. <laughs> you forgot the main thing. Yeah. <laughs> definitely not democratic, definitely not Jewish. I mean, it's self-enactment, of course, says that, but, you know, many states says many things about themselves right. and that cannot be taken as its face value. Um, no matter how much, you know, there is a movement toward describing and defining Israel as uh, for the Jews, um, to be able to get there, really, it has to uh, enact unspeakable acts of uh, violence that um, perhaps even unprecedented. Um, so how you're going to cleanse the territory from its multiplicity, its diversity, and enact this notion that it's for the Jews. It's, it's really a, a very, very problematic uh, proposition. But putting those aside, I think your question is really, really good. It's really pertinent. Maybe it is the question, political question in Palestine today. How do we describe the Israeli state uh, in political theory terms? When you put all our categories and so on, uh, machinations into work, look at all the different versions of uh, political communities, institutions, and what kind of state Israel is. Um, I don't have a short answer, sorry, mm. uh, but I could suggest ways of thinking about it. I, I, I am now, I have been exposed more recently to it being um, identified as an apartheid state and it has only about three or four year history uh, more people are uh, becoming sort of familiar with it and investing in it uh, settler colonial uh, has had longer I think in 1967 Maxine Rodinson's book uh, is really as a settler colonial uh, State. So it has a longer history. There has yeah, but even it has in the sixteen, the South African president said that Israel is a system too. Did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he said that because he wanted to say, why you pick on us? Mm -hmm. We are not the only apartheid system. Israel is an apartheid system in sixty-two. Sixty-two. Yeah. Um, that's really. Uh, I, I, I'm sure it's must be quoted somewhere by someone that's an important really tidbit mm. um, uh, so that's been around um, in terms of now how do we dis how do we describe this uh, settler it's probably a combination of settler colonial because there are very strong elements of settler mm. colonial mm. state very much like uh, British uh, colonized uh, North America uh, when you look at the indigenous people and their struggles, their settler colonialism, today some Palestinian activists who tell me that well, indigenous people are different because they are at least recognized in law, they are understood to be part of Canadian territory. They have well, it wasn't always like that. And mm -hmm. uh, when you look at in 1780s and to 1830s, as far as Canadian, not Canadian, but British North American law was concerned, um, indigenous people were part of flora and fauna. Yeah, like trees and rivers and so on. Mm. They're naturally there, but they can be manipulated for any uh, purposes. It took millions of people's of lives and long struggles for them to be first recognized and so on. So it, it took a long, um, there was like, and then there, there a settlement, uh, what was the indigenous rights uh, settlement process start much later. 
anyway, it's it's there is that element. So the, Israel does have that element of settler colonial. Um, um, it has elements of apartheid, uh, clearly that. It has also elements of colonial, because settler colonial and colonial are not the same. Uh, uh, settler colonial and colonial states act differently. There is that uh, uh, aspect of it, because um, uh, settler colonial means that you settle your own people, and then there are other people. And then there's colonial means, which happens also that you settle your own, uh, you colonize, but you're not necessarily interested in settling certain people of your own. So there are different uh, categories. I think the difficulty with Israel is that it combines all of this and more. And so we don't have really uh, political theoretical categories to immediately um, uh, describe. The other complicating element, and I think we do, I don't know a precedent for this, the, ve uh, the very founding of it is underwritten by empire states. See, we are yet, um, there's a brilliant book by Frederick Cooper and uh, Burbank. They are now beginning to, we, we don't know actually, <laughs> Too many thoughts came, and so I'm just like doing gibberish. Stop <laughs> slowly. We think, though, that it is only modern state of Israel that is difficult to describe. There are now historians who are going back to the period that you're interested, but broadly. And why have we thought, they're asking, that empires actually disintegrated? What if they didn't? What? They did disintegrate, right? British Empire ended. French Empire ended. Attempted German Empire ended. Hmm, these historians say, let's think that again. Because dominant powers, hegemonic powers, hegemonic ideologies are very successful in writing obituaries and birthright histories. So nation states, they wanted to call themselves then, France, Germany, and so on, created these uh, founding myths being articulated on the disintegrated empires. Imperial age was gone. They say, some historians, we need to rethink that. Maybe empires mutated. They became of a different kind. We, we were fooled. And for a century, we've been calling them modern nation states. Actually, they have been acting like empire states. Could, could you repeat the, the name? Um, Frederick Cooper okay. and uh, Burbank is the surname, but I forgot now the, the first name. Um, very interesting. This hasn't been yet picked up like as an intense discussion in the literature. But it certainly shocked me because I happened to be doing exactly research along those lines in China and, and in Ottoman Empire and, and in Spanish Empire in, in, in the Americas. Just very limited research to look at what I was calling, before I read this material, citizenship's empire. <coughs> um, so I'm looking at a citizenship as an imperial technology. 
um, of dividing and ruling people, categorizing, classifying, all the stuff that. Sorry about this long segue, but the, the, the point I want to make, although I agree that we don't have categories with which to define Israeli state, why should we assume that we have categories to define British state? Perhaps we were too quick to take the category nation state for them and, and accept it, but perhaps they were something different. Now, if that's the case, with Fr French and British mandate, weren't they installing something here of a different um, thing that more in line with uh, empire states, meaning maintaining their control and sphere of influence here and founding of Israel as a state of a modern type was precisely part of that strategy, empire state strategy. So then Israel may appear simultaneously both a colony, colonized, but also colonizer, a periphery in the modern empire state system, but a center in a region. Very complex, but then who said Israel was simple? A very simple, uh, complex geographic concatenation here. So we need to rethink all those categories. Thank you. But don't you think that we should add to this point like neoliberalism as a main, as a main thing to understand Israeli regime today? Like, mm. Meaning we are mm. always referring to, uh, to categories that have been framed throughout history, even apartheid, colonialism. Uh, what, do you, don't you think that also the specificity of the regime is due to a kind of neoliberal order that has certain uh, patterns that you can find at the same time as you would find apartheid, settler colonialism patterns. Mm. I would, I would go more on this line. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you could say that empire states, if we agree, um, and if we have a political, you know, work on this, that we it's actually move part of American empire rather than the British, you know. But they had, I mean, a very good point. But I've been thinking about this, how quickly the category West slips into political discourse. What does West mean? Well, American st empire state supported by Euro uh, European empire states, mm. right? So there is like a coalition of empire states mm. um, sharing a particular history and interested in dominating the world in a particular way. So it fits into that, and Israel fits into that very well. But this is a hypothesis, huh? Recording there. This is a hypothesis. <laughs> I'm it did not record that sentence. <laughs> You're so lucky. <laughs> My reputation is saved. <laughs> the question that you were asking, uh, maybe we, we thought too quickly about the end of empires and mm. the end of the metropole as the center of the colony. Mm. This is one of the questions that uh, Parta Chatterjee would ask in the colonial state. It's one of the, the arguments. Is, is colonialism or colonial rule 
only a coincidence in the, in the in historical evolution of the nation state or is, or is intrinsic to it, mm. which is very much related mm. To, mm. To, to this mm. mutation you are referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, a last comment. Uh, um, I would like to highlight that uh, to, to think about uh, uh, Palestinian citizenship, one should not limit, as very frequently is done, uh, one should not limit the analysis to uh, the legal, political uh, power structures imposed by Israel on Palestinians. I think uh, since Oslo, uh, and this is that that would be that, that would constitute only a partial analysis of what is going on in Palestine because the the, the Palestinian Authority, even though it's not an state, uh, I, I, I argue somewhere that it, it has family resemblances with a, with a state and in the sense that at least respond to the question of uh, uh, social or political organization uh, has been. Um, quite successful in shaping and reshaping and redefining uh, Palestinian uh, citizenship and, and, and I think uh, and I think uh, more attention should be paid to that and, yeah. and, and that is why I was uh, I'm so interested in working in Palestinian internal law yeah. and the role it yeah. has played in in this reshaping of Palestinian subjectivity yeah. identity and, and citizenship can I just quickly uh, say yeah. that that's absolutely right. In fact, this comment you made helps me a lot um, in articulating this notion of the difference between uh, status and habitus and acts. Because if you stay with the idea of citizenship as legal status, if you're applying that or thinking through Palestinian citizenship as status, you're stuck with Israeli imposed order. Because practically, anything that legally Palestinian citizens derive is from Israeli uh, citizenship regime. That's why you need to go beyond and see what Palestinian people are enacting, performing, that goes not only beyond it, but articulate different forms of solidarity relating to our conception of rights, emergence of legal, um, legal uh, norms, that has to be studied. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very much for your...